from Jersey to Bournemouth. And uh, we moved over in, the, in August in the summertime. My dad said, oh, do you want to go to Bournemouth Beach? And I was like, why would I want to go to that disgusting beach, was my, was my response. Now, I was only 15 at the time, so um, I've, I've learned to kind of grow and love the beaches since. But Jersey is quite literally an island full of beaches like Durdle Door. Like, think of your most beautiful, most kind of special beach in the area. It is an island full of these incredible beaches. And more often than not, we spent um, pretty much every weekend in the summer at a beach called St. Juan's Beach. And this was a real surfer's beach. And there should be a picture just coming up. And this is, this is an actual surfer at St. Juan's Beach. Now, you don't see waves like that down at the Boscombe Reef, do you? <laughs> no. And so in the, in the summer, you'd quite often get kind of three-foot waves. In the winter, you'd get kind of six-foot of waves. And it was, it was phenomenal. It was a fantastic place to grow up. And, um, you know, we were really into it. We had all the gear. We had multiple boards. We had, like, wetsuits and socks and all sorts of other stuff. And um, one day, my dad bought me these pair of fins. And uh, they're like flippers, but they're just for bodyboarding and surfing. And they're designed to give you a small, kind of powerful push of energy to help you catch more waves. And I had these fins, and I was absolutely loving them. Like, it was amazing. I caught all these extra waves. I was kind of loving life until at one moment I caught this big wave and I was on my bodyboard and I was at the top of this wave and I suddenly sort of fell down the wave to the bottom and I lost control and I got wiped out and I got pushed to the bottom of the sea floor. And these fins, if you can see behind me, they almost look like spades, don't they? The kind of shape of them. Now these, these fins just basically plowed my feet into the sand and they, they were also a little bit too big for me. You know how your parents sort of go, oh, we'll, we'll give them some growing room, <laughs> don't they? So these things were far too big for me. And actually, they just filled with kind of wet sand as well. So I basically kind of had these weights on my feet. And I was at the bottom of the seafloor, and I was under about seven foot of water, and I couldn't get my feet out. So I was, I was stuck, and there was, there was wave after wave breaking above me with this consistent downward pressure kind of pushing me down. And I remember I'd been under the water. It felt like I was under for five minutes, but it was probably more like a minute. And I got to a point, and I was like, I have to come up for air. Like, I, I desperately need to take a breath. And thankfully, right at the last minute, the wave subsided. I managed to sort of dig my feet free. I kind of burst up for air, took a huge gulp, and I, sort of, and I swam to the seashore. And literally, the first thing that I did was I kicked these fins off my feet, and I threw them as far away up the beach as I possibly could, until my dad later told me off and then told me to go and get them. <laughs> but actually, the reason that I did this is that I realized that these fins were actually incredibly dangerous that they had, they had almost trapped me under the water and could have even, potentially even led to me drowning. And you know, this morning, what I want to talk to us about is how as believers, there are things in our lives that we need to cast off, that we need to put away, because ultimately they'll lead to our death and our destruction. And I'm going to be looking at uh, today, Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be reading from verses 5 to 11. But before we do, it's really important that we understand the context of this passage and the verses that came before it. And in particular, I want to look at verse 1, where um, Paul says, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now briefly, this is telling us that because we have been raised with Christ, because we were once dead in our sin, but we are now alive in Christ, we must go and live differently Live as people that have been forgiven and saved from sin. Don't go on living in sin any longer. And actually what it's telling us is that our identity isn't in those things. Our identity is as loved, redeemed, accepted children of God. Okay? So, 
as loved, accepted, redeemed children of God. Let's read from verse 5. It says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do, do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And I want to just start by making some sort of general comments about this passage. My first general comment is that this isn't just a one-off bit of scripture. This isn't just a kind of one-off thing that Paul says to one church at one time. It wasn't just the church in Colossae that had issues with sin. Actually, Paul says very similar things in Romans 8, Hebrews 12, 1 Corinthians 5, and Ephesians 4. And it's quite clear that um, this is an important message that all churches and all Christians need to hear and to put into practice in their lives. And Paul uses very similar terms. He uses the terms put off, cast out, cleanse out, put to death when speaking about Christians and sin. What's also interesting is the format of Paul's letters are very often the same. Paul starts by reminding the believers of the gospel, reminding them of the truth that, they, that they've been saved by Christ, that they're loved and accepted, and now as a result go and live differently. If Paul had done it the other way around, if Paul had said, live like this, live like this, live like this, God will love you, actually we would be getting into legalism. And that in itself is sin in itself. The Bible says that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We therefore are loved and accepted, even at our worst, even in our darkest of moments, we are loved by Jesus. And so Jesus' love comes before a transformation of behavior. Okay, that's really important that you hear that this morning. So our starting place as Christians is that we are loved and accepted by Jesus. Now live like this and don't live like this. And specifically today, I'm focusing on the don't live like this part of Colossians 3. Paul gives us two lists of don'ts. The first, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, um, which I believe are the much more kind of obvious and blatant things. And the second, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, which are the much more subtle and less obvious in our lives. Now, these lists are quite broad, and I would say probably with some confidence, and I certainly speak for myself here, that at some point in our lives, every one of us has been guilty of one, if not many, of these things. If you're, if you're me, it's probably all of these things, okay? So what does, what does Paul tell us with these sins? He actually says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, and believe it or not, this, this term, put to death, can actually be translated as slaughter or murder. Paul says, murder these sins in your life. And the image here is, is bloody and brutal, not fluffy and tame. I don't know if, um, just out of show of hands, who's seen the film The American Sniper? Okay, this side have. Okay, <laughs> come on. Um, so I, I absolutely love the, the film The American Sniper. It's about Ameri uh, an American Marine called Chris Kyle, um, who at the time was said to be the best sniper in the world with over 160 confirmed kills. It's an absolutely fantastic movie. Um, it's quite tough to watch in some places, isn't it? There's some really kind of hard-hitting parts. And um, I watched an interview that Chris Kyle did with Time magazine before he died. 
And he was asked, what is it like to, to kill in war? What is it like to kill in battle? And he was asked one particular question where he had to shoot a woman who in one hand had a grenade that she was about to throw at US soldiers, and in the other hand was holding her three-year-old son. And he was asked, was it hard to, to, to kill that woman? And his response was this. He said, well, what would you rather? Let them kill one of, um, kill one of them or have them kill a Marine. Let them kill one of your fellow soldiers. And actually, it was, it was, it, the way he was speaking, it was very much a them and us. It was the enemy and us. And actually, when asked if he regretted any of the kills, he said, not one. I watched a few interviews with soldiers, and actually, their responses were fairly similar. One key theme that came up was it was kill or be killed. It was us or the enemy. And actually, there was this kind of clear removal or disassociation of kind of emotion replaced with conviction and belief. Now, having never been in the military and having never killed anyone myself, um, I was actually quite surprised by these testimonies. This wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting people to hear to talk about the, the difficulty of it and, and this sort of stuff, and this wasn't what came through. But actually, what I realized is that as Christians, when it comes to sin, we need to have the same mindset as these soldiers. It's us against sin. It's, it's kill or be killed. And actually, we need to help put these things to death without hesitation. We are, in one sense, called into a bloody battle against sin in our own lives, one where we must murder and slaughter sin and put it to death. So the first group of sins that Paul talks about are sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Um, the term sexual immorality, uh, the Greek word used here is porneia, and this is actually where we get the word pornography from. And um, basically what this is saying is that anything outside of God's design and model for sex, which is one man and woman together in marriage, is considered sexual immorality. Now it's important, and this is, this is really important, it's important that we understand that sex is God's idea. Okay, Sex isn't a dirty word, it shouldn't be a dirty word for Christians. Actually, sex is God's idea. In, in, um, in Genesis, Adam and Eve are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. So one of the first things that they're told to do is go and have sex. Isn't that great? Um, it's also clear from reading books of the Bible, like Song of Solomon, actually God designed and created sex for our enjoyment and our fulfillment. It isn't just for the procreation of children. But, and I believe that this is an important message, because too often in Christianity, the thing that we communicate is sex is bad or sex is immoral or whatever it might be. You know, growing up as a Christian, um, in a Christian family, if I'm honest, the message that I heard on sex was, I probably heard 20 messages on the fact that sex was bad for every one on the message that sex was good. And what it kind of leads you to grow up with is, you know, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. Oh, you're married, sex is good. Yeah, go for it. And that's kind of what you, um, kind of what you take away. But actually, what I want to tell you this morning is that God designed and created sex, but he does give us boundaries for sex. And that is for our enjoyment and our protection, not to allow something good to become corrupted by sin. Now, I appreciate that this view of sex is very countercultural in our society today. Um, you know, our view in, our, in society is very much we can do as we choose with our bodies. And, um, and actually, as a society, we celebrate the kind of freedom to be able to do as we choose. You know, but just think about the problems that some of this way of thinking and some of these things have caused. You know, just think over the last year, the numerous um, stories of people like Harry Weinstein and all these stories of kind of sexual immorality and kind of inappropriate behavior and these mostly male celebrities being held account for their behavior from the last 30 years. It's, it's these things, and we know that these things aren't acceptable. We know that inappropriate touching and language and things like that isn't acceptable. 
But as believers, what we're called to do is it says, it says men treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Actually, that is how we are called to behave as believers. Now, sadly, Christians aren't escaping these headlines either. You know, on Thursday, um, I normally get most of my news from my BBC News app. I don't know where you get your news from. Hopefully it's not Facebook. But um, I was reading through um, the app, and I normally, if, if I'm in a bit of a rush, I just switch to the top ten news stories. And number three on the list was this. It said, Willow Creek church leaders quit over sexual misconduct scandal. Now, Bill Hybels, probably a name that a lot of you know, very famous Christian church leader, led a church of 25,000 people in America, wrote a number of quite phenomenal books. I've read, I think I've got at least two of them on the bookshelf at home. And actually, uh, books that I've enjoyed, books that have helped equip me over the years. But actually, Bill Hybels was accused of having an affair and of inappropriate conduct with women that he worked with. Now, it's unclear whether these allegations are true, but some of them seem very compelling. But what is clear is that guilty or not, Bill Hybels wasn't above reproach. He wasn't above accusation. He didn't protect himself or these women from the risk of sexual immorality or from the risk of accusation. You know, I used to work with a guy, and um, for the purpose of the illustration, I'll, I'll just say that his name is John. Um, but I used to work with a guy called John, and um, John had so much, so many issues and problems in his life because of sexual immorality. Um, John had a failed marriage. He then had a long-term girlfriend, which he actually had an affair on. He cheated on this girlfriend. And what was really bad is that he had an affair with someone um, that we all worked with. And this woman's husband found out, and she came into the work. The husband came into the workplace, threatened John like it was this big thing. They weren't allowed to work in the same office, and John's girlfriend found out as well, and it, it caused all this kind of pain and hurt and heartache. And um, and as a result, I remember talking with John about a year or two years after this had happened, and his girlfriend wouldn't really still sleep with him after the two years that this had happened, and all trust in their relationship had been lost. And I remember one day he was, he was in the office and we had these kind of glass um, offices that you could see out of. And this attractive woman came into the workplace. And John sort of stood there and he sort of proper like eyed her up as she came in. And he saw me do it and I was like, yeah, John, what are you doing? And he just sort of did this. You know. And he, his sort of attitude was, oh, there's no harm in looking. That was the sort of thing that, that John would say. And I remember talking to him about his affair and asking him if he regretted it. And the, these are the actual words that he said. He was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a typical hunter-gatherer, was what he said to me. He said, I see what I want and I go for it. And as the conversation carried on, it was clear that he didn't regret what he had done. Actually, re he regretted the pain that his actions had caused himself. That was what he felt really sorrowful and bad for. There was no real repentance. In fact, he actually he justified his actions and what he had done. And there's a difference here between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow regrets being caught, regrets the pain that you've caused yourself, regrets the circumstances. Actually, godly sorrow leads us into repentance, leads us into knowing that we've, we've done wrong against the God of the universe. Okay, so let's talk about greed, or specifically one aspect of greed that I'd like to talk about, and that is the love of money. So, uh, now when we think of the love of money, um, a lot of us probably think of investment bankers, we think of wealthy business owners, we think of people earning shed loads of money, holidaying on paradise islands, flying their private jets, you know, their multiple cars and multiple houses and all these different things. And actually, we often think of the love of money as being a problem for those people. Would anyone agree with me? Yeah? 
I know that I felt like that before. But actually, the reality is, this can be very close to even our, I would say, I don't know anyone here that is a kind of wealthy, multi-millionaire, but I'd imagine it can be quite close to our day-to-day -day lives. As a lot of you know, I was, a, I was a bank manager for five years, and I worked in high street banking for 10 years, and I can tell you with absolute confidence that you do not need to be rich to be a lover of money, okay? And um, being a lover of money is about having your dependence and security and fulfillment in money and possessions. It's not necessarily about being wealthy. When your security and dependence in, is in money, is in your bank balance, is in your house, your cars, your property and possessions, actually this can lead you to hold on to things too tightly. As believers, we can easily deceive ourselves in this area as well by just putting God in front of it. And I'll explain what I mean in just a moment. But if, as believers, every time we receive a pay rise, every time we receive a bonus, or some sort of money, it either leads us to upgrading our lifestyle or causing us to hoard money away, then I would ask you to think about whether this might be a heart issue for you. As believers, we're really good at just saying, oh, God has blessed me. You know, oh, I've been given a great, I've been given a, a new pay rise, I'm going to buy a bigger house, God has blessed me. Oh, I've received an inheritance, I'm going I'm to have three holidays this year, God has blessed me. Or I'm going to go out and buy a brand new sports car. God has blessed me. And we're very, we're very, very, we do that though, don't we? We do. We put God in front of it. And so my challenge is if every time you receive a sum of money, a pay rise, you either store it away or you continue to upgrade your lifestyle, I would challenge you to think about whether money is a heart issue for you. There has to come a point where as believers, we stop upgrading, we stop hoarding, and we start to fuel and fund the mission of God and see churches planted and God's kingdom grow and expand. Just to say again, money, money isn't necessarily evil in and of itself. It can be really good. God, God does bless us. God does want you to enjoy your house and your holidays and your cars. But it's, it's very, it can be very easy to kind of fall into that love of money. Okay, so those are just a few of the kind of more obvious things that Paul talks about and spots out. And the second list are our kind of more subtle sins. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. So let's start with anger or rage. And this is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because actually anger isn't always a sin to be angry. The Bible says be angry but do not sin. But it's when we allow anger or rage to get the better of us, to affect our behavior, that actually we know that we've stepped into sinful grounds. Now, usually for me, this, this will be a pride issue. So, um, and it's usually, it's usually directed at my children. So my kids will be misbehaving, and they'll do something like... <laughs> that's a bunny, apparently, on the wall, just so that you... If anyone wanted to know. And uh, that, that's, that's the naughty one, okay? I just want to be clear. Um, but I, my kids will usually do something. Like, I walk into the living room, and the coffee table will be there, and they'll have poured, like, their juice or water onto the table, and they'll be splashing it. They'll be doing this. And I'll come in, and I'll be like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Stop. Stop right now. And the oldest one will give me an excuse. She'll say, oh, we're just playing. We're just playing. The youngest one will do this. She'll, she won't break eye contact with me. She'll continue to do this. And then she'll go, No. Now, at this point, I am raging inside, <laughs> raging inside. And the thing that's really bad here is that 
I, I, I'm, I'm looking to discipline here out of anger. I'm not saying to myself, oh, do you know what? I love my children, and I want like, good godly character in them, and I want them to grow up the best, so I'm going I'm to lovingly correct my children and help them through this. What I'm actually thinking is, how dare that two-year-old do, speak to me like this? That's what I'm feeling. Any other parents of young children? Similar, maybe. And for me, this is when I know that actually pride slips in my mind, because actually what I feel is, do you know what? I'm, I'm being disrespected here. And that's not okay. And for me, this is where I know I slip into sinful anger. And again, it's very easy to justify this type of way of feeling, isn't it? It's very safe to say, well, I'm being a responsible parent. I'm disciplining my children. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I can give myself excuses as to why it's okay for me to respond in this way. Okay. So, slander. And this is, again, this is another really subtle one. And let me tell you how this plays out in my life. So it will usually be something at work. Let's say somebody wrongs me, someone sins against me, they do something that's really upset me. And what I will do is, is rather than, rather than forgive that person and walk away, I'll tell other people what they've done. I'll say, hey, do you, you know this person? They, they can't be trusted. Do you know what? You won't believe what they did to me. You won't believe the, the situation that they put me in. You need, you need to know about this. You, I want you to understand so that you can protect yourself from this person as well. And that's the, that's the sort of things that will happen. And again, it's easy to justify. It's easy to say, well, other people need to know. They need to know what this person's like. They need to, know, they need to be able to protect themselves should they try and wrong them as well. But actually, what is it that Jesus tells us to do? Well, in Matthew 5, verse 39, Jesus says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, this is often kind of abbreviated as just to just turn the other cheek. And I think sometimes that can be unhelpful because what we take from that is, oh, just walk away or just, just turn away. But actually what this is really saying to us is that if someone's going to wrong you, you're better to let them wrong you again than you are to respond in sin and revenge against that person. That's what Jesus is telling us to do. What about filthy language? The ESV translates this as obscene talk. And again, this is, this is a really tough one, isn't it? You know, it's obvious kind of going around and shouting and swearing, constantly saying kind of rude, inappropriate jokes, is, that's kind of a bit more obvious. But again, there can be kind of subtleties to this as well. And again, this is a tough one. You know, I'm quite a sociable person. I like to, I like to be in conversations. I like to build relationships with people. You know, particularly at work, I kind of often will instigate the conversations. And I quite like to kind of wind people up and get a bit of a reaction, have a bit of fun. But it's very easy to go from a harmless joke to close to the line, to over the line. That's, that's certainly been my experience. The book of James describes the tongue as being very dangerous. It says that a forest fire starts by just a small spark, and then suddenly the whole forest is ablaze. And actually, our tongues are no different. A small or dangerous word or thing that can be said actually can lead to significant consequences and actions. You know, just take my friend John, for example. His affair didn't start with his body, it would have started with his words. It probably would have been, oh, just a bit of harmless flirting. Oh, just an inappropriate joke. And actually, what happened was that it led to him having an affair and causing himself and other significant amounts of pain in his life. D.A. Carson says this. He says, people do not drift towards holiness apart from grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. 
We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. And what he's saying here is that actually we naturally lean towards the things that are wrong, apart from grace-driven effort. Now, D.A. Carson doesn't give us a definition of grace-driven effort, but I want to spend the kind of next part of this sermon just talking to you about that, because my aim this morning isn't to say to you, hey, look at these sins and look at why they're all so bad, and everyone, everyone leave rubbish, feeling rubbish this morning. Actually, my aim is to say, do you know what, these things aren't good, but actually together we can put these things to death in our lives, and there is grace and there is freedom for us this morning. That's what, that's what I really want you to leave with. So the first thing is that grace-driven effort is a new heart. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. A new heart leads us to follow God and causes godly repentance in our lives when we sin. Not just worldly sorrow, not just feeling bad about the consequences of the actions. Secondly, grace-driven effort is living in the fullness of the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out onto Jesus. Paul says in verse 6 that um, because of these things, sexual immorality, lying, anger, greed, that God's wrath is coming. That actually one day that God will put an end to sin and will punish sin. But actually as believers, we need to understand that by Jesus dying on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus in our place. And that we, as a result, are accepted and loved because Jesus has dealt with the problem and penalty of sin. Commentators call this the great exchange. He, ex he exchanged our sin, our punishment, our death for his righteousness, the love that the Father has for the Son, his acceptance. That is what we have received as God's people. Grace-driven effort lies, lives sorry, in the grace of God, knowing that we are loved and accepted by him. Grace-driven effort fights with the weapons of grace. So sin is a lie and it promises us lies. And we need to fight the lies with the truth. And the truth is God's word. The Bible reminds us of the truth of sin and reminds us of the truth of who we are and that we have been redeemed and that we have been saved from sin. Reading the Bible keeps God's tr truth at work in our hearts and minds and helps us fight against the lies and the temptations of the enemy. Next, grace-driven effort fights together. And you know, if, if there's one point I could leave you with today, this is the point. So this is the one that I, I really want you to hear and to put into practice in your lives. Grace-driven effort fights together. John 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Together, we fight Together we help keep one another accountable and we support and we encourage one another. You know, take the sniper Chris Kyle that I mentioned earlier. He never fought alone. He always fought with a team of people. You know, he didn't become the world's best sniper with 160 kills by himself. Actually, snipers have, um, have with them a spotter, someone who is kind of looking out, they're measuring the distance, they're looking at the angles, they're keeping an eye out for incoming soldiers coming from, their, from the back. Um, they have with them flanker teams and artillery teams, which again help protect them from behind. And also, once the sniper has made some key kind of um, taken out some key individuals, they'll storm the building. And so they're always working as a team. You know, they have logistics, they have satellite imagery and uh, planes taking photos, and they're constantly giving them information on what's going on. 
They're never, ever fighting alone. And actually, my point here is that actually as believers, too often we fight alone. We don't confess our sins to one another. We don't ask for help and support when we're finding things tough or we're struggling. And more often it's because we're, we're, we're afraid of being rejected or we're afraid of condemnation. But actually the Bible tells us that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned. Actually, we are loved and accepted. So let's, don't be afraid to confess your sin. We need one another. You know, if I was, and for, for example, if I was to say this morning, okay, hypothetically, men, I want you to stand up if you've ever lusted, ever looked at pornography, ever committed some sort of sexual immorality in your life, every single man would be standing. And if he wasn't, he'd probably be a liar. And I imagine the truth is this would be the same if I said that to the ladies as well. And my point is, is that we all struggle with the same things, but we need to confess our sin. We need to help one another, help support one another, and help spur one another on in our faith and our walk with Christ. Going back to Bill Hybels, Bill Hybels clearly had a lack of accountability and challenge from his friends. Proverbs 27 says, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. You know, and what if a good friend had said to Bill Hybels 30 years ago, hey, do you know, the fact that you're in the office late at night with your secretary by yourself, I just don't feel comfortable with that. I think you should, you should stop that. Who knows if the headlines would have been different this week. I am so thankful for good brothers in Christ who are not afraid to speak the hard truths to me when needed. And, you know, who have at times said, hey, this is an issue in your life. You need to work on this. You need to repent of this. You need to move forward. And likewise, I've been able to say some tough things to people. And actually, their response has been, do you know what? Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for caring enough to help me deal with this in my life. Actually, I, 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 need, I need help with this. Like, please help me stay accountable. So let me encourage you. If you're struggling or finding things tough, be, you know, be around. Be around with us on Sundays. Be with us in life groups in the week. Don't fail to meet regularly with other believers. Be honest and ask for help. We're not just members of some organization like a football club. Actually, the Bible says that we are a family. We're brothers and sisters together in Christ. You know, it's not like my gym membership, which lasts a year, then it goes for 18 months, and it comes back every year. It's, we're, we're here together. We're committed to one another. Okay, I'm going to hand over to uh, Gordon and the band, who are going to uh, lead us in a time of response. Thank you.